I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. For more than two years, Governor Greg Abbott has taken an increasingly hostile approach to defending the Texas-Mexico border. But this summer, Abbott somehow has gone a step further. According to interviews with state officials and documents reviewed by the New York Times, Texas law enforcement has lined the riverbanks with razor wire, denied water to migrants, and in some cases intentionally refused to alert federal border agents who might assist arriving groups seeking asylum. Now, this treatment, while unquestionably abhorrent, is not exactly new. Growing up as a second-generation Mexican-American in Chicago, I'd often hear stories about what my grandfather faced as he left Mexico for America. In fact, a couple years back, I made a short film about him called Sebastian. And in that, it told the story in part of his journey through America in the 1950s. And even then, the brutality, the discrimination, the fear some had that he was here to take their job, it was all part and parcel of the immigrant experience. And so today, I wanted to have a different kind of conversation about what's happening down in Texas. And to do that, I thought we should call up one of our most beloved recurring guests on Talk Easy. Of course, I am talking about my father. Let's give him a call. Hello? 
Back by popular demand, my father. Dad, welcome back. Hey, let's see. Who's feeding me? Is it uh, Kamal Bell? I think Kamal may have you beat. Dr. Ja came on a lot. Ah, yes. To be fair, Dr. Ja stopped returning my emails once the Biden administration hired him. <laughs> so I, I appreciate you haven't you haven't done that. What does a teacher do on summer vacation right now? You're usually teaching middle schoolers. You have these couple months off. Are you okay? Are, are you getting by? Do you miss them? Yeah. No, I, I do. Really? Because that silence felt like you really didn't miss them. Well, because I'm, I'm going back in about a week. But honestly, I mean, I decided to do this, and I really wanted to do it here now that I'm thinking about it. I'm sitting on my mom's couch, and all summer, for the most part, I've been taking care of her. And I'm sitting on the couch where she sits for hours watching her masses and watching and doing her rosaries and all that. And I'm trying to, to feel my surroundings. And then she has like 20,000 photos around here, photos of you when you were little. And then we're going to talk about the situation, about immigration. And I think about all these people who want to have this and how unfair this is. Uh, it's just odd. It's funny because I wanted to call you up because obviously what's been happening down in Texas where there's been this humanitarian crisis as more and more people try to get across the border separating Mexico and Texas. Mm. As I'm looking at you right now, you're enveloped by a bunch of photos of my grandmother, your mother, who is 97 and sick, but still 97 and here. And of course, in most of the photos that I'm looking at, it's of her and my grandfather, Sebastian. Yeah. And so with all of that, given that this is such a personal issue, a familial issue, when you look at what's happening right now down in Texas, how are you holding all of it? Well, it's, it's, um, it's fear-mongering. And what the orange buffoon created was this fear that these people crossing the border were these, you know, as you call them, and I'm not going to go into the names because they're ridiculous, but the majority of the people coming here are here to find that whatever they want to call American dream. You know, your Uncle Juan is an engineer, your Auntie Bertha was a manager of a bank, you know, your Auntie Rosa, she had amazing job at Commonwealth Edison with a great pension and she's happy and they all found partners for life and my father gave up everything and unfortunately the way we're being perceived and the lies and the false truths of whatever media source that these white people want to get into are taking over their lives so people are afraid of the unknown you can call it racism, you can call it whatever. I mean, it's just, it's pathetic is what it is. The way you're framing our family's story, mm. that we all came here, that we made a better life for ourselves, that we got married, we had jobs with pensions, it sounds like a fairy tale. And it's odd to me because I've never heard you <laughs> describe the journey in such picturesque terms. 
Are you doing that because we're on a podcast right now? No, no. It's about opportunity. So we had an opportunity. The opportunities didn't just come and fall into our laps. They came with crazy amounts of work and always thinking or saying that we are equal or we are the same or we are capable. Always proving ourselves more. My sisters would speak a little bit of Spanish or in school and they would get hit. So the the journey, yeah, I glossed right over it, but that we hit a bunch of bumps. Yeah. And then we ran them over and then we just kept going. And that's all these people want is just give me a chance. I'm, I'm going to prove myself. You can't just bitch and moan about what this country didn't give to you. We can only look at what's there and what can we take. And we're not taking it from nobody because nobody wanted to drive a forklift for 25, 30 years. Nobody wants to do that shit. And yet my dad did. And then from there, I can do better. And that's what you need to do. And my brother did better. And that's what he needed to do and everybody else. And all these people who are coming over, be honest with you, they're coming over in a harsher manner than my dad did. I mean, yes, he was caught a couple of times. He was thrown back. He was marked and uh, shaved head and did all these things. And I'm sure he went through a lot of racism, but he wouldn't talk about it. It's almost like a World War II veteran who doesn't want to talk about the war. He'd have stories, but they were always lighthearted. He, he didn't want to get into living in a box in Bakersfield. He didn't want to get into that. But, you know, I can see why that would be painful for him and why it was painful for him. But, you know, these people coming over who are just being I think bullied and harassed and just abused on the other side of Mexico. Some of them are falling into traps of taking drugs on the other side or gonna, we're going to kill your family. There's so many stories. And so their, their desperation is being shown. And that joke of a governor in, in Texas is that he's just trying to get votes. That's all it is. And I think that's key because these people that are coming from all over. Central America, South America, from Mexico. From all those places, they're often leaving even more dire conditions. They're fleeing political upheaval, all kinds of violence. Yep. And to now come here as their last resort and to then be treated the way they are being treated, it is almost unfathomable. And yet it is happening, and it is happening in large part because of policies created and carried out by Governor Greg Abbott. And so um, I think with that, we should talk to someone who challenged Governor Abbott in the last election this past November, and someone who's been outspoken about why and how we can do better in this moment. What do you think about that? Should, should, we, should I make a call? Bring him on. What do you have? Auntie Rosa. Should we call her up? <laughs> For sure. Let's do it. Boy, she's going to have a hell of a perspective. <laughs> Imagine I call her up. She's got like three pages ready to go against Abbott. <laughs> no, uh, we're going to call an old friend of the show. Someone who has been on before, but not as many times as you. Let's call up the former congressman of Texas, the author of the new book, We've Got to Try and a recent gubernatorial candidate for the state of Texas. Better 
I like that guy. <laughs> I like him too. I'll, I'll make sure to share the message. <laughs> I'll call you back in a little bit. Cool. Beto, it's good to see you. It's good to see you. It's been a little while. I think we last spoke back in April of 2020, right around when the pandemic began. To say that you've been busy these past few years feels like a colossal understatement. You ran for governor. You wrote a book. You did a little teaching at the University of Chicago, which all of us Chicagoans were very excited about. Before we dive into the bigger stuff, how the hell are you doing? I was thinking about this, not because I anticipated the question from you, but I, I've just had a great string of days and, and weeks and probably months. And I, I feel incredibly lucky. You know, our, our kids all started school on Monday and they're all just in this terrific place. Our oldest is 16, our youngest is 12, our middle child, our daughter is 15. They are becoming who they will be. And we can see that. And it's fucking awesome. They're just amazing people. Not that they don't have problems because everyone does, but man, we've lucked out there. And my mom, who since you and I last talked, found that she had cancer and a serious cancer in different parts of her body, including in her liver. And she just got you know a blood and body scan yesterday, met with her oncologist. And these two lesions in her liver are shrinking, which is beyond what we could have hoped for. And the cancer in other parts of her body has stabilized and maybe in some places even begun to recede. We don't know, and the doctor was really clear about this, this may or may not hold. The next three months will be very telling. But I got that news yesterday. Sam, I've just been on this high. So the stuff that matters most, we can talk about the governor's race and, and other things that are important and truly do matter and matter to a lot of us. But personally, in my life, the things that really matter most to me, my family, my wife, our kids, my mom, my sister, we're doing really good. Well, I think we're going to have to try to carry that positivity and optimism mm. as we work through in the next hour what you've professionally been talking about, especially throughout the summer. You know, you spent a whole lot of time raising awareness for what you've called a humanitarian crisis at the border. For context, Dexter Filkins at The New Yorker writes that in the past two years, millions of migrants spurred by political and economic turmoil in their home countries and by President Joe Biden's welcome stance have come to the southern border and crossed into the United States. Though hundreds of thousands have been denied entry, hundreds of thousands more from countries as far away as China and Tajikistan have made their way in, often by claiming that they will face persecution or violence if they return home. As a resident of a border town like El Paso, and as someone who has spent a lot of time these past five years across Texas at these ports of entry, what have you seen this summer that has made you call this moment a humanitarian crisis? What's different about right now? The level of barbarism that we are seeing at the Texas-Mexico border, the absolute inhumanity, 
this disgusting way that we are treating our fellow human beings is shocking to me. Right now in the Rio Grande River outside of Eagle Pass, Texas, it's a really small town in Maverick County in South Texas across the river from Piedras Negras. The governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, has deployed this floating wall. It's a barrier comprised of large orange buoys that are strung together with netting below the surface of the river. And in between each buoy is literally a saw blade, like the serrated edged disc, so that if you were to try to grab onto it, you'd slice your hand open. It is medieval. It's something you might expect in like a Mad Max movie or a post-apocalyptic TV show. And you see that and you're like, well, shit, I can't believe that anybody would do that to anybody. And yet we're doing that to people right now. And in that part of the Rio Grande River that joins United States and Mexico that we know of so far, 28 people have died just in this one little section. And over the last week, they recovered two bodies, including of a child that were caught up in this buoy barrier. I spoke to a, a member of the Texas Guard who has been deployed down there yesterday, and he talked about coming upon a woman who had one hand on this concertina razor wire on the shore to pull herself out of the water, her other hand holding her, her little daughter to try to pull her out of the river. As this is happening, Department of Public Safety troopers, that's our state police in Texas, are yelling at the woman and this guardsman to get back in the water. And there are substantiated cases of children and moms and being pushed into this river in 100, 105, 110 degree heat. So you've got this governor who has almost mastered the art of cruelty here in Texas. And you might throw up your hands, and I know we'll get into the governor's race that took place last year, and you say, you know what? We were unable to defeat him at the polls. This is our future for the next four years. The thing is, we know that there is a higher power in this country, and that's the president who, through the Constitution and U.S. law, literally has jurisdiction and purview over the border, over immigration law, over the river, and over our connection with Mexico. And what I hope that we are going to do as a country is push Joe Biden, literally give him the power to do the right thing and intervene before we lose any more lives unnecessarily. And that's the crux of it, that kids, that moms, that people are dying right now unnecessarily, and they're dying to come here to do better for themselves and their kids for sure, but also to do better for all of us. And I know that's a story you have told about your family. It's why you are here mm -hmm. in the United States right now. And it's a story of tens of millions of our fellow Americans. We are people from the world over who have chosen or who have been brought here, in some cases against their will, but by their very presence, made us a better, stronger, safer place. And we are not just ignoring that history right now. We, we are literally trying to go backwards against it and losing the essence of what makes us so special. Well, I wanna talk about what President Biden can and, and what I think you and I both believe he should do. But before we do that, you mentioned these troopers down at the border. The director for the Texas Department of Public Safety, Steve McCraw, responded to some of what you just alleged. And, and, and he said, the purpose of the wire that, that you talked about is to deter smuggling between ports of entry and not to injure migrants. He said, the smugglers care not if the migrants are injured, but we do. So on that side, 
you have someone like McCraw and, and a whole bunch of people from the Texas Department of Public Safety saying the wire's not to hurt people, that we care about the migrants and the cartel does not, that we are actually trying to be helpful. What do you say to that? I don't know another way to put it other than this guy is so full of shit. And not just on this, because one of his own troopers has blown the whistle to describe everything that I'm sharing with you right now. And then it's been substantiated by other troopers who work under him. But this is the same guy who had dozens of troopers outside of Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, May 24th last year for more than 77 minutes when an 18-year-old man was inside of a classroom armed with an AR-15, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, and was free to kill, destroy the lives of 19 children and two teachers. 77 minutes before those DPS troopers who were fully armed themselves, and literally that is the job they signed up for while they waited outside. And since then, it's been more than a year, we have yet to get the facts, the truth, answers and accountability from Steve McCraw, from the Texas Department of Public Safety, from the governor of the state of Texas. So in my opinion, and certainly for the people in Uvalde and throughout much of the rest of Texas, this guy has zero credibility right now. And the other thing is he and Greg Abbott both have acknowledged that this barrier that they've put up and the concertina wire that's not just on the shores, it's literally wrapped around barrels and submerged underwater so that as you try to cross, you will become entangled, ensnared, cut up, and very possibly drown. When confronted with that, they're like, yeah, you're right, but maybe, just maybe this will deter people from making the journey in the first place. So they concede that this is likely to kill, to maim, to injure, and to produce suffering but they say that is worthwhile as long as we're providing a deterrent for people to cross in in the first place. That is what is just so galling, but it's going to take us doing everything we can to persuade President Biden that this is not just the right thing to do, but the right thing to do that will not compromise or cost him the election or political power to do other important things. And I feel like I can make that case. Everything you've described has come under what has been called the Operation Lone Star. That began in the summer of 2021 as Texas saw a historic upswing of illegal border crossings. Now, Texas legally cannot enforce federal immigration law, but Abbott, in turn, has imposed misdemeanor charges on people for crossing the private property of ranchers along the border who choose to participate in this program. Some of them have not chosen to participate, but the fact of this operation is that they have already spent $4.5 billion in the first two years. Your state has already committed another $5.1 billion through 2025, costing taxpayers of Texas roughly $2.5 million a week. But that brings us to, you know, the taxpayers themselves, 4.4 million of whom voted for Governor Abbott in this last year's election as you attempted to unseat him. Now, this is a man who you've called a thug, a murderer, and a ghoul. Before I go on, now that I have you here, do you want to tell me how you really feel about him? <laughs> you know, the facts speak for themselves in this case. And to maybe open the aperture a little bit wider, we've described what's happening at the border. But Sam, we also lead much of the developed world 
in the rate of maternal mortality. It's three times as deadly in Texas for a black woman, in fact, to give birth or to be pregnant. And it has a lot to do with the most restrictive reproductive health care ban in the United States of America. That is Greg Abbott. And then two years ago, we had a major winter storm in Texas. And because the governor had allied with the energy producers, the pipeline companies, the billionaire CEOs who run the energy operations of this state and not the people of Texas and didn't weatherize and prepare that grid, 700 people died in this state, many of them literally freezing to death in their homes. So, you know, sometimes politicians will traffic in hyperbole or will speak in charged terms to try to get your attention. In my opinion, this is an accurate description of who this guy is and what he has done. But your very good question is, well, why in the hell did people vote for him? And why is he the governor once again in Texas? And, you know, that answer is a little complicated. Part of the answer is that we are the most challenged state in the nation when it comes to voting. So it's harder to cast a ballot or to register to vote in Texas than it is anywhere else in the nation. And those attacks on voting rights are most often focused on black voters, Latino voters, young voters, the very old and increasingly the disabled in the state of Texas. So that's part of it. Uh, Republicans have held a monopoly on political power for three decades. Ann Richards was elected governor in 1990. She was one of the greatest governors we've ever had, but was the last Democrat ever elected to that position. And since then, Republicans have had a stranglehold on power and the privilege that it affords from partisan and racial gerrymandering and redistricting to the election laws that effectively disenfranchise and freeze out such a large part of the electorate. So every bad thing that I just described is reflective of Greg Abbott and the people in power, not necessarily the people of this state, because they don't look like the electorate that we have right now. And so my mission, and it's been this for a long time, is to do what I can through voter registration and voter engagement to make sure that those two are the same, that the people of Texas look like and act like the electorate of Texas. And right now, those are two different groups of people that have produced the outcomes that I've, that I've just described. In the state of Texas, there were 17 million plus voters registered. There's almost about 22 million that are eligible, but you got 17 million. Of those 17 million, 8 million turned out, the turnout rate effectively being 45%. But I want to narrow in on what was a chief concern in this past election and what it means now, which is border security. Because you have said in a whole bunch of recent interviews that Abbott has blood on his hands. But many on the right, including former chair of the Republican Party of Texas, Matt Rinaldi, claim Abbott won the election because of, not in spite of, his policy on the border. Voters across the Texas, in exit poll after exit poll, repeatedly emphasized that the migrant crisis was the most important issue to them. And so if Abbott was imbued with this governing mandate, why then do you squarely put the blame and the blood on his hands? This is such an excellent question because it's it's a tough one and it's a hard answer to give, but the responsibility is all of ours, right? And the accountability comes home, not just to the governor who is taking these actions, but the people who've enabled him to do that. And those of us on the other side of this who've been unsuccessful in making the case or overcoming the challenges of voter suppression and voter intimidation and everything else 
that I laid out earlier. You know, you wonder over the the course of human history, even modern human history, how some otherwise modern enlightened states could condition their people to hate some group based on religion or ethnicity or immigration status. And I think that same question is very relevant today in America and in Texas. When you have four years of Donald Trump talking about Mexican immigrants as rapists and criminals, describing them as animals, as an infestation and warning of an invasion. And and those are all words that President Trump used. Greg Abbott, our current governor, traffics in that same language of invasion and people coming to kill us and to rape us and to do terrible, terrible things to us. And so look, you, I, those perhaps listening to this may have the luxury of doing their homework on this or reading deeply. Others are working too many jobs, have too much going on, or for whatever reason, have one source of information and news. And that might be Donald Trump. It may be Greg Abbott. It may be filtered through Newsmax or Fox or or some other medium like Twitter. It was a perfect foil for Abbott if, if we questioned him on why nothing had been done in the months following the mass shooting in Uvalde in a state that leads the country in the number of school shootings, he would point to the border and say, watch out for those Mexicans. If we said, what are you going to do about the outflight of talent from public schools in Texas and our poor performance against public schools in almost every other state in the union, he could point to the border and warn of invasion. And Sam, that is such an emotionally resonant issue. It scares the shit out of people because they've been conditioned to be afraid of folks who are brown, who are coming from another country, who speak a different language who, because of the failure at a presidential level for as many presidents as I can think of in my adult life, we don't have an immigration system that allows them to come here safely, legally, and in an orderly fashion. And they are effectively, functionally forced into crossing through that river in between the ports of entry, just the very side of which can send shivers down the spines of some who've been warned about these people coming to get us. So, I mean, that's a long answer to a tough question, but I think it's pretty close to the truth of the explanation for how someone doing this horrible stuff to our fellow human beings is able to win political power in Texas. I want to unpack a few different moments of what you just said, and in part because I think it explains how we got here. You just said that every president has in some ways failed to deliver comprehensive, sensible immigration reform. Now, this is something that Biden talked a lot about on the campaign trail back in 2020. It's something most Democrats running for president, including yourself, talks about when they're running for president. But legislation actually hasn't been a focus in Washington since the summer of 2013. This, of course, came on the heels of Obama's landslide victory over Romney, which was delivered in part by Latinos who overwhelmingly voted for him at 71%. Come June, the U.S. Senate, led by the Gang of Eight, which boasted four Democrats and four Republicans, passed a bipartisan bill, 68 to 32, in what Politico called the most monumental overhaul of immigration laws in a generation. The bill was then kicked back to the House of Representatives, which I imagine you remember since it was the same year that a young freshman congressman from Texas 16th district was elected by the good people of El Paso. When you look back at that time 
How do you make sense of what happens next? Well, I'd have to go back even further. The last time a president was actually successful in doing this was in the 1980s, and it was Ronald Reagan. 1986. You might say, look, that was a different time. We were a different country. That was a different Republican Party. You know, all that is probably true. And yet since then, no president has been able to or willing to, and I think that's an important distinction, to marshal the political capital and power necessary to get this done. Because it's not easy. It's not broadly popular. And in President Obama's case, he chose, instead of doing this, to focus on health care in 2009. But that essentially was the choice. And he knew it was going to take everything he had, probably didn't know that he was going to lose his majorities in, in both chambers, ultimately, and be severely constrained in his political power going forward, leading up to the moment you describe in 2014, where he was no longer working with a Democratic majority in the House. He had Speaker Boehner there at the time, who was in no position to deliver his majority in the House. And so it was a nice effort on the part of those members of the Senate. There were many of us who were in the House at the time, myself included, who wanted to work on that, but politically at that point, impossible. You fast forward to 2021 and President Biden, again, with majorities in both chambers, this is not the issue that he chooses to move forward on for whatever reason. What do you think is the reason? I don't think there's anything nefarious or malicious. I want to make that clear. You know, the president chose to focus on the very real crisis born of the pandemic, a crisis of public health and life and death. He chose to focus on infrastructure and making sure that we make the investments in you know, roads, bridges, water systems, internet connectivity that are causing us to fall behind some parts of the world and some parts of America to fall behind others. He chose to focus on the climate crisis and was able to pull together really an extraordinary coalition of Congress people to get that done. The most far-reaching climate legislation this country's ever seen, well short of what is needed, but perhaps about as far as he could have taken it with the very slim majority he had in the United States Senate. But in that mix, we didn't have things like voting rights, which I've made the case are really important if you want to see a democracy work in a place like Texas. And in that mix, we didn't see immigration, which is going to continue to be both a humanitarian crisis, and Sam, I'll argue right now to you, is going to be a political crisis for Democrats. If we cannot fix this, I guarantee you we will own this because the other side is content with their cruelty. They'll build walls and put up razor wire barriers in the river, and they'll say when people die and drown, well, maybe they shouldn't have tried to cross in the first place. That's their case. They're comfortable with it. The people who support that understand it. What is ours? I don't know what it is right now because I haven't seen a leader of our party actually get something meaningful done on this. In your book, We've Got to Try, you connect the dots and make the case that perhaps some of the GOP's comfort with barbarism with antagonistic, derisive language towards Latinos really can be brought back to Trump's announcement to run for office in 2015. Why don't we take a look at that for a second? They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. But I speak to border guards, and they tell us what we're getting. And it only makes common sense. 
It only makes common sense. They're sending us not the right people. It's coming from more than Mexico. It's coming from all over South and Latin America, and it's coming probably from the Middle East. But we don't know, because we have no protection, and we have no competence. We don't know what's happening. And it's got to stop. And it's got to stop fast. When you watch that clip now, how much of his rhetoric, that comfort with criminalizing and brutalizing specifically Mexicans, does that really begin to take hold of the GOP in that announcement? It marks this very clear break with the GOP of George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan. I just watched a clip of a debate between the two of them when they were running against each other in the Republican primary in 1980. They're in Houston, Texas. And both of them are like fighting each other to show how open-hearted and humanistic they are about immigration, acknowledging that the system wasn't working, but that the answer couldn't be simply turning people back or deporting all these folks. And lo and behold, Reagan is able to lead that effort in 1986. And there's still a strain of that within the Republican Party coming in to this announcement speech that Trump makes in Trump Tower in 2015, I guess. There's this moment in the Republican Party and probably in America, like, who the fuck is this guy on the part of some and others saying to themselves, finally, he is saying out loud exactly the way I feel inside and have been afraid to say for fear of not being politically correct or being shot down, or I didn't know that I had a home in either of these political parties. And seeing Donald Trump's rhetoric acted out by Greg Abbott and these DPS troopers on defenseless asylum-seeking children and mothers is our chance to stand up in the face of this, act, and stop it from happening. You know, we can go back and forth on rhetoric, and theory, and people say this, then, and what did it mean, and, and how did it play out? But I want to go to something that is real. On August 2nd, 2019, Governor Abbott sent out a fundraising email accusing Democrats like yourself of, quote, plotting to transform Texas and our entire country through illegal immigration. The email continues. If we're going to defend Texas, we'll need to take matters into our own hands. The next day, in a Walmart in your hometown of El Paso, that's maybe eight, nine miles from where you live, a 21-year-old gunman drove, as you said earlier, 600 miles across Texas. He went into that Walmart, took matters into his own hands, killed 23 people. Those people were children, they were mothers, they were fathers, they were grandparents. And he did this according to his own manifesto, as a response to the, quote, Hispanic invasion of Texas, citing the Great Replacement Theory. The gunman claimed to be defending my country from cultural and ethnic replacement brought on by an invasion. Those words that we've been batting around on that day, almost exactly four years ago, as we're talking right now, wasn't just words. It produced real action and it produced real lives lost. And I wonder, as a father, as a resident of El Paso, how you hold the weight of all this four years later. I think the connection you draw between 
the rhetoric and language used by people in positions of power and the actions that that rhetoric inspires is so important because you just made the case that El Paso, that massacre on the 3rd of August, 2019, would not have happened otherwise. It was fully animated by the Great Replacement Theory, by Donald Trump's warning of an invasion, by Greg Abbott's demand that we take matters into our own hands. And yet, as an El Pasoan, as someone who's lived here my entire life, I've known that long before Donald Trump, the border was the focus of so many of our fears, of people who did not look like or speak like the majority of Americans coming into this country and changing this country as as they came, much as you know the Irish did in the 19th century and Southern Europeans and people from all over different parts of the world did at different times, inspiring that kind of fear and anxiety. But for much of my life, it has been here, literally in El Paso, where we meet the rest of the world, where the rest of our country, in at least the language of these populists and demagogues, is supposed to be afraid. You know, Donald Trump would routinely talk about El Paso as a dangerous place, literally lying, no basis in truth whatsoever. But those lies were able to take hold because people had been conditioned for so long to think about immigrants in this way and to think about the border in this way. And so I just knew that it's really important, and I know now that it's really important, that we understand the power of that language and that rhetoric. And we don't just say what those guys are telling you is wrong, and it's important to do that, but that we also share our own stories. Because if we don't tell our story, somebody else will tell it for us. And that was what Trump and Abbott and others were so successful at doing. And so the things that you and I have been talking about today they can seem intractable or impossible. Like we haven't had immigration reform since 1986. We'll never get it. We have school shootings and they only seem to increase. It will never get better. The planet is warming. We're incapable of mounting a political response. We might as well give up. But in this book, I tell the story of people, including those from El Paso, who were denied the ability to vote because they were black and fought for decades to win voting integration in Texas by 1944, inspired LBJ to pass the Voting Rights Act in 1965. That took generations to get done. And so when it comes to this question of rhetoric and the damage that it does to very real human lives in places like El Paso, we can't give into this and we can't allow that massacre in 2019 to be the end of the story. It must push us to do better, to do more, to engage with our fellow Americans offer them the truth about who we are, what we mean, and what we contribute to the rest of this country. I think that has to be part of the conditioning that sets the stage for whoever the president is that ultimately leads on immigration reform and ending the tragedy and the needless death that we're seeing on the border today. After the break, more from Beto O'Rourke. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. 
Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You keep coming back to this, this need to tell a new story. And looking at how you ran your race for governor this past year, it seemed like you were trying to tell a new story. But I wonder, because back in 2018, you had this quote, you said, the morning of election day, every part of me knew that we were going to win. And the opposite happened. You come two and a half points short. It was a loss that was hard to accept and understand. This past November, when the results came in and and you lost to Governor Abbott by a little more than 10%, how did you process and begin to understand how and why that happened? It's almost like a law of physics uh, of this inertia. You've been for the past year pushing at almost unbearable speed to connect with enough people that you can win this election so that you can do the good things you've been talking about and stop the bad things that you see happening all around you across the state of Texas. And there's never time to really wonder about the odds or to ever even entertain the notion that you're not going to prevail because that can defeat the entire enterprise before it's decided. Like, how can you mount this effort if some part of you thinks that this is not going to work? You you just wouldn't do it. It's like you're running this crazy race where you're killing yourself over the course of it. So you come through this, the election's decided, you have lost, and you've stopped physically moving, but everything inside of you is still pushing forward. You care just as much about the next school shooting, which is bound to happen because we are not changing the laws in Texas to match our values. You still care about the people who can't get an abortion or even just see a reproductive health care provider and are likely going to lose their lives because of it. And yet you no longer have this vehicle or platform to change that in the near future. And that, Sam, is the toughest thing in the world. Where does this energy go? And I'll tell you the last you know, eight, nine months have been spent working through that. And a lot of that is reaching back out to folks across the state of Texas and finding out where I can be useful and helpful and getting back to something that we have done very well over the last 
five or six years, which is engaging with prospective voters, helping them to get registered, bringing them onto the rolls, and fighting back against this significant voter suppression and voter intimidation that we see here. So if this is all worth fighting for, and it very clearly is, then you can't give up and you just have to find a different role and way to be in this fight. I think anyone listening to this right now, when you ask the rhetorical question, where do you pour this energy into? Well, you've poured it into this podcast, (laughs) (laughs) most certainly. And you've poured it into going on every kind of cable news program and and talking about what's happening in Texas. But I want to say with the data, because, you know, this past election, you won 19 counties. In 2018, you won 32 counties. In the intervening four or five years, what has changed in the Texas electorate that precipitated that dip? Do you think the divisions have grown deeper between left and right? Was there something in your messaging that, that you would do differently now? How do, you, how do we unpack that? There's a lot to it. I got time. <laughs> you mentioned another factor earlier, which is that 2018 was the first referendum on Donald Trump's election of 2016. And to the credit of the good people of Texas, they knew that Ted Cruz was Donald Trump's partner in the Senate, and they knew that we could do better. And they turned out at historic levels. I think the the largest voter turnout in Texas in 40 years, it almost eclipsed presidential election turnout levels, and we very nearly won. So all of those were factors that made 2018 really an exceptional year. And, And then there's Ted Cruz. I mean, believe it or not, there are a lot of people in Texas who love him because he's their guy. And he's willing to do any outlandish, stupid thing necessary for their cause, including inciting insurrection and rebellion in the Capitol. But he also inspires extraordinary energy and effort and voting on the other side. Greg Abbott, though, I would argue is just as, if not more dangerous to the people of Texas than Ted Cruz, is able to put across such a lukewarm, milquetoast persona in complete contrast to what Cruz does, that just on superficial indicators for people, there's not as much to hold on to or to hate or to to be against. But, you know, you asked another important question. Are there things I could have done differently? Absolutely. I mean, it's not all on those factors that I just described. Some of that is my responsibility as the candidate to have a message that was better at cutting through the fear-mongering about immigrants and asylum seekers and invasions that were taking place at our border. And I'm one of those people who believe that in a contest like this, you either win or you learn. What did you learn? I think one of the most powerful things that we were a part of in 2018 was direct physical voter engagement. So you may or may not see the TV ad or remember the mailer. You'll never forget that another human being in 105 degree heat, which is how hot it is in El Paso today, took the time to knock on your door and have a conversation say, hey, Sam, this guy Beto is running for Senate in that case. And these are some things that he would like to do for Texas. But I showed up here today to ask you what is most important to you. And that two-way conversation, I believe, produced that historic turnout. We had a version of that in 2022. I don't know that we prioritized that in-person connection 
the way that we did in 2018 and the way that I think could have helped us to achieve at a much, much higher level. I think there's also a case to be made for a greater focus on voter registration. You read out the numbers and the statistics earlier. There are a lot of potential voters out there who literally aren't on the rolls and cannot participate in an election. It is tough work. It is the shit work of a campaign. Nobody wants to do it, so it doesn't get done. And yet people like me, organizations like ours, powered by people, we need to be doing that work or we're not going to correct for the imbalance produced by voter suppression and voter intimidation. And then lastly, money's not everything, but money's a lot. And if you're outspent 140 million plus to 80 million, and you're already going against the person in power, right? You need additional support and help. And if you look at, Sam, what's been invested in Texas from outside of Texas over the last six years that I've been running statewide campaigns, it pales in comparison to what's been invested in Georgia, which is a third the size of Texas, to Wisconsin, to Pennsylvania, to you name a state that is a battleground state, and then you look at Texas, we are the future of this country, whether you like it or not. 40 electoral college votes, 30 million people. It's the future of energy production. It's the future of immigration. And I think we have a case made that national donors and everyday Democrats should be contributing to causes in Texas to give candidates here a fighting chance to win because it's good for the people in this state and it will be terrific for the people in this country. Well, you know that I phone banked for you by way of uh, Powered by People, so I, I need no convincing on a personal level. And yet I have to say there's like this nagging question that's like eating at me that I imagine many people listening are thinking, and it's not one they want to ask, and it's not really one I want to <laughs> ask, but I feel like I gotta, because we've done a good job here, I think, of trying to tell the truth. And the truth is, whether it's the Cruz loss in 2018, the Abbott loss in 2022, you mentioned Georgia, where Stacey Abrams, who has come on this show, she lost in 2022 as well, after having lost the last time in 2018 to Brian Kemp. And I just wonder, this optimism you hold, this hope you have in people, has it not been shaken by these results, by these past elections? I think then, what's the alternative? Do you give up? Do you give in? Do you accept everything that I've just described that's taking place in Texas as our permanent future and fate? I can't do that. Ultimately, we will prevail. I believe that in every bone in my body. The question is, how long is it going to take? And I think that's a matter of effort. It's a matter of resources. It's a matter of luck. But those things that I can control, like effort and raising the resources and using whatever platform I have to direct people's attention and volunteer hours and dollars to those activities that will shorten the amount of time between now and when we ultimately win. That's my job, that's my role. And, and I mentioned these stories that are so inspiring to me of people who are in the trenches for decades, sometimes generations. You know, those, those civil rights leaders from the end of Reconstruction towards the end of the, the 19th century till 1964 to the Civil Rights Act and 65, the Voting Rights Act, 
Imagine if they just said, you know what? Fuck it. It's just too hard. We're never going to overcome Jim Crow. We'll never overcome white supremacy and racism in this country. This is just something we got to live with. And of course they didn't. And they pushed the people in power, including most famously Johnson, who told Martin Luther King Jr. at the end of 64, I just don't have the power to do voting rights. I wish I could. You know, God bless you. Good luck. And King leaves a meeting and he says, we got to go get this guy some power. And they go and get him some power. John Lewis, most notably, almost losing his life in Selma, Alabama. Within eight days, Johnson is convening a joint session of Congress and he's pushing this country forward. We give credit to Johnson. He deserves much of it, but he wouldn't be there without John Lewis, without Dr. King, without the generations of civil rights leaders who preceded them, right? Whose names we don't even know, but they never gave in. They never gave up. They told themselves, I've got to try. And that's the spirit that animates me. And I hope this moment and brings us to where we need to be as a country and as a state here in Texas. You can see my frustration. I am tired of losing. I can't stand this. As a Chicagoan created in the image of Jordan, <laughs> I am so fucking tired of losing. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I just got to tell you, you know, the folks who mentioned civil rights and voting rights, they, they didn't win for decades, for generations. Like some people didn't see that victory in their lifetime, no matter how hard they fought, but ultimately they won. There is a lot of evidence in our shared history that staying in this fight, as frustrating as it is to those like you, Sam, who have been phone banking and fighting for and voting for candidates you believe in only to see them lose, if we give up after a given number of election cycles, it's just going to prolong the amount of time that we're in this fight, those who are left to fight it before we win. Do you consider yourself a masochist? You know what? I have a high tolerance for pain. Is that why you're a runner? Yeah, I'm a runner. I'm a cyclist. I'm a hiker. I'm a backpacker. I like to put the miles on and I like to push myself physically, mentally, probably emotionally, which is what you're doing in a, in a campaign or at least in the campaigns that that I've run. And you have to like that because if you don't, you'll be destroyed. And so, yeah, I think some part of me is good with that. Yeah, I think that this is probably our, our shared connection then. Um, to bring it to where we started, in this moment, in this fight against the brutalization that Operation Lone Star has been driven by, what do you want President Biden to do? I want him to come pull up that buoy barrier, this drowning device in the middle of the Rio Grande River outside of Eagle Pass. I want him to pull up the razor wire wrapped barrels that are submerged under the waterline that are entangling and drowning these migrants and asylum seekers. I want him to resolve the conflict between state DPS troopers who are pushing pregnant mothers and children back into the river and federal border patrol agents who are trying to do their job and process these asylum seekers as they set foot on American soil, follow the law of the land. This is his responsibility. And I don't think the Department of Justice lawsuit that is requesting that Greg Abbott pull up that barrier is enough. We don't know when it will be resolved. We do know that people will die in the meantime, and we need to see leadership from him. And so I think it is really that simple and that clear. 
and that necessary for the present to act and to act right now. Do you think you will? I don't know. I, I, I'll say this. I had the chance to get to know him a little bit when I was in Congress and he was a vice president, a little bit when I was on the campaign trail with him in 2019. And everything I gather from that is that he is a good moral man who wants to and often does do the right thing at the right time, at these moments of truth. So I have some confidence that he's going to come through. I also know that there are countervailing political pressures from those around him, warning him of the danger of tangling up with the governor of the state of Texas on an issue that is difficult to explain, that is politically popular on the other side, you know, build the wall, send them back, who cares if they drown? And there's a very important civilizational defining level presidential election taking place, and they don't want to fuck this up. And, and I understand all of that. But fear of the politics around this is not going to be a good look going into 2024. Fearlessly doing the right thing, whatever the polling suggests to the contrary, is going to be something that by the time this election is called in November of 24, will, to the president's credit, engender confidence in the American public that this is the right guy, the guy with the strength and the moral clarity to do this job for America. And the basis for my case is this is literally what he ran on in 2020 when you had a president who had just put kids in cages, separated babies from their mothers at the U.S.-Mexico border, referred to them as animals and inspired the shooting in El Paso that killed 23 people. Candidate Joe Biden said, we are going to get back to the moral center of this country. We're going to do the right thing and we're going to make sure that our policies and our actions match our values. Here is his chance to act on that and show the American public he was serious about it and to win yet another election against Donald Trump on this same issue. And yet, when I posed the question of whether he'll do it or not, it was the first time in our entire hour together that you paused before giving an answer. Trying to be honest with you, and in all honesty, I am troubled by the fact that the president has yet to act, and that in part informs that pause that, that you noticed. But I also, you know, as a student of American history, I, I know that presidents can't do this on their own. They have to be pushed, or in Johnson's case, given the power by those of us in California, Texas, and the other 48 and our territories to do the right thing. And we've seen it time and time again in American history. You know, apocryphally, there's a story told that FDR is meeting with the NAACP and they're making the case to him about civil rights and voting rights. And he says to them, you're right. Now make me do it. And I wonder if Biden isn't saying to us in Texas, you're right. Now make me do it. And so I'm not judging him. I'm not faulting him, but I am going to do everything I can to help produce the pressure and the popular will to help him do the thing that I think he wants to do deep down inside. You know, before I called you up, I was talking to my dad about the border. And obviously, as you know, my personal familial connection to this issue is why I made that short film that you saw and why, in part, I wanted to sit with you again. 
And in many ways, this conversation has really been about convictions, why we do the things we do, why you've done the things you do. And in so many ways, I want to ask the question that a very, very young Ulysses asked of you back in 2013, which came about, I believe, in the first few weeks of you being elected to office in the House of Representatives. And you fly back home because of a government shutdown led by none other than Senator Ted Cruz. And that night, as you're back home for a 12-hour visit, you put him to bed, and he says what? He says, Dad, why do you want to have a job where you never see us? And what did you say? I mean, I, I did my best to make sense of it for him. And I think, as I've told you before, to make sense of it for myself, because he asked the question for both of us. It, it caused me to ask the question of myself, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, literally, the government that I am a part of is is shut down. I'm in the minority. I'm a freshman. Am I going to be able to get anything done? And is the little I am probably going to be able to get done worth the sacrifice that this kid who had no say in the matter is paying right now? Yeah. And, and it wasn't a slam dunk. It wasn't a like, well, <laughs> this is just what we do in the O'Rourke household. You know, I'm I'm so glad just to tell you, Sam, that I did stay in Congress. I, I ran for re-election. was actually able to do far more than it looked like, like I would be able to achieve at that moment. But you're right. It comes at a cost. And, uh, and it comes at a cost to the volunteers and the staff and the people who have made whatever success I've had. But, you know, it's all relative, right? And you think about the sacrifices that other families are making to serve this country in, in other ways. Um, I served on the Veterans Affairs Committee for six years, and there was not a veteran or an active duty service member I met who wouldn't tell me that their entire family was effectively serving with them, right? And that responsibility is one that I take very seriously. When we think about what Powered by People will do next, for example, I want to make sure that what we ask our volunteers, what I ask of myself and my family is going to be the most effective option to shorten that period of time when we're living in this brutality and this deep evil that defines the government of the state of Texas right now, because it's going to take a lot of effort, a lot of pain, a lot of sacrifice and a lot of service. And we've got to make sure that it's worth it. And so, um, yeah, great, great, great question uh, that Ulysses asked and that you just repeated. I guess my last question is a, is a follow up to him, which is after these past 10 years since he asked that question, is your answer as to why and how you stay in this fight? Has it been clarified in the intervening decades since your son asked you that? Oh, yeah. When I started out in Congress, the community I represented had the worst wait times for a veteran to see a mental health care provider. And that was directly connected to very high rates of suicide, self-harm, and suffering that we were seeing in El Paso. Focusing on that issue, building coalitions of Democrats and Republicans, and even working with President Trump, with whom I served for a couple of years towards the end of my time in Congress, we were able to make people's lives better, to shorten those wait times, and to avert tragedy for these families who'd already given so much for this country. 
there are so many other instances and people that I have been able to help despite some of the defeats that we have suffered. We have made this a better place for the service that we've provided, the effort that we've expended, the struggle that we've been a part of. And I feel so goddamn lucky to have been a part of that and to still be a part of it in in some way. And my hope is because we started with my kids and and you're you're asking this really good question at the end of the interview. My hope is that later in Ulysses' life, and he's 16 now, so I hope he's seeing it now, he understands that. And I, I asked this rhetorical question earlier in the interview, you know, these kids and moms who are drowning in the Rio Grande River right now because of the cruelty of our governor, at some point, future generations will look at our generation and say, well, what the hell were you guys doing when this was happening? Were you powerless to stop it? And Ulysses is that future generation. And I want him to look back on this moment and say, you know what? I'm proud of what my dad did, not just for the effort, but because he was part of a larger movement that ultimately stopped this inhumanity and replaced it with something that we're proud of, a system by which people can come here legally, safely, without losing their lives, and in an orderly fashion so it doesn't freak people out in other parts of the country. I'm working for that for him and for the world that he will inherit based on what we do or what we fail to do. Well, I sure hope for my generation, for his generation, we're not that far off, but we're a little far off, that we can both look back and see a change that we desperately need. I hope that happens. Um, And in the interim, I so appreciate all that you have done and what I imagine you'll continue to do. Well, thank you. And thanks for having this conversation and focusing on the things that are just so important and are not going to change unless we take that action and unless we're focused on it and unless we understand the stakes and the opportunities before us to do the right thing. So very grateful to you and looking forward to the next time. As am I. Beto O'Rourke, a pleasure. Adios. That was my conversation with Beto O'Rourke. As you heard him mention throughout the episode, his organization, Powered by People, helps organize volunteers to reach eligible Texas voters to register, vote, and volunteer. If you'd like to get involved, you can visit poweredxpeople.org. Earlier this month, they sent a letter to President Biden with 65,000 signatures, pleading with him to stop Governor Abbott's cruelty at the Texas-Mexico border. As of today, President Biden has yet to take executive action. If you'd like to take action, we've included links to the Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid, the Texas ACLU, and Mission Border Hope in Eagle Pass, all on our website at talkeasypod.com. We've also included that link in the description of this episode on your phone. Now, before we go, why don't we call my dad back for a second and uh, just check in on him? Dad, you there? I'm here. Don't sound so excited. Are you in your little room there, your little little dungeon? Yeah, I... (laughs) You know what? Your father, my grandfather, Sebastian... (laughs) worked long and hard for me to work in this little box 
to tape this podcast, okay? Well, you, I've you, never called it a dungeon, <laughs> but but what what the hell? We'll call it a dungeon. You, well, you, you do have his uh, his typewriter there, so that's 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 a good start. And his middle name. Yeah, but really though, how did it go with the with Mister Beto O'Rourke? It really went well. The thing that struck me about him, and it's probably why I liked him so much you know, four or five years ago when he first ran for Senate against Ted Cruz, hmm. is he just has this irrepressible spirit about him, this dogged determination to fight the good fight, yep. to make the case for that fight in clear and stark terms. And towards the end of the episode, I had found in the research that about 10, 11 years back, when he was first a congressman in Texas. His oldest son, Ulysses, one night after work, asked him a really tough and, and, and kind of profound question. And he said, Dad, why do you want to have a job where you're never with us? Because being a congressman, of course, means that you have to spend a lot of time in D.C. You have to spend a lot of time on the road, on the trail, campaigning. Well, it's every two years. You're always campaigning. And I just thought that question to bring us full circle, was it one that you ever asked your father, Sebastian, when he came here in the early 60s, became a citizen and had to work tirelessly as a forklift driver for 30, 40 years? Did you ever ask him that question? No. And, you know, it's... The questions to his life, unfortunately, came out towards the end of his life. And it's interesting. If I could do it again, I wish I asked, what did he give up? I knew what he gave up. But at the same time, how does it make you feel? Like, you know, giving up his parents, giving up his family. Because back then, I mean, there is no video calls. There are no FaceTime and all that. It was, you have the letters, but the connection, it's ne it wasn't there. The Thanksgivings, the Christmases, the whatever. I mean, it, that was lost. He created his own family. And so, selfishly, those questions on my part never came up. It does haunt me. And unfortunately, my last conversation that I had with him, it was at an IHOP after he did uh, this chemo. This It was like a procedure they were doing they were isolating this cancer in his body and he came out fine because he loved IHOP and we went there and I just turned on my recorder on my phone and I just started asking him about and it's the first time I heard about his adventures in Denver and not adventures but he was working in Denver and how he was separated by four years from his own family because he knew that if he could make it here and the only way that he was going to have them come over here was the right way, because they came with visas. They didn't have to cross that border, that desert or river or running, going into a, whatever situation they had. They came here, you know, on a train, but with a passport. That's a big difference. He came here mostly illegally, though there were a couple work visas, so that you could come here legally. Yes. Just to give them an opportunity. Imagine you're telling your three kids to come 
to this country. They have they've never spoken English in their lives. Into a situation in 1960-61 where racism was rampant into a neighborhood that was just starting to change, but the schools were not changing. And they were welcomed, but at the same time, you better assimilate fast. And the only way you can do that is by speaking the language. And there was no bilingualism. There was no, you know, affirmative action. There was nothing like that. It was just, you, you got to tough it out. We're here. The idea is to be here. And that's why I've always had this, this hard-nosed kind of attitude, like the biggest step is to get here. After that, what do you do with it? And if you don't do shit with it, then why did you waste these people's time? You know, when you're talking about having that, that hard-nosed attitude, I keep going back to that story when you're 11 years old in Chicago and you're out with your friend at a grocery store. Is that the beginning of that hard-nosed attitude? My friend, my friend Martin... He had these he had these food stamps, which I had never seen him before in my life. My my family didn't have them. And I looked at them and I thought there was Monopoly money. It literally looked like Monopoly money. And the different colors would represented different bills, twenty, ten, five, and things like that. So he's showing me this stuff and I'm like, What what is this? You know, it's like play money. He's like, No, we can buy food with this. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like come on, that's you're messing with me here. He's like, watch. Let's go to the grocery store, pick out whatever you want. I'm like, well, let's do it. So he took like $50 out of this pack because you can just rip them right out, like coupons almost. And we walked over right across the street from where I I live. And um, he's like, get whatever you want. So we're walking around and I'm getting like a bunch of American food because Mexican food. I I love Mexican food, don't get me wrong. But after a while, you just wanted to to have some sloppy joes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or something different. And so I'm like picking out all these different items. And then I got some candy. And all of a sudden he goes like, no, candy, no, you can't get the candy. I'm like, okay, fine. So, But at the moment, I honestly thought he was joking. I said, well, let's see how far we can go with this joke. And so I fill up the card. He's adding it up. It's about 40-something dollars. And now we take it to the cashier. The cashier does all the items. He pulls out the money, and I'm looking at her. I'm looking at the cashier. I'm like, okay, I can't wait to see her, her, her face. All of a sudden, she takes the money. I'm like, wait a minute. She's taking the money. This is, wow. And then all of a sudden, she opens up the register, and she pulls out change using more of that colored money. I'm like, what? Funny money. It was like, what, what is this? Like Monopoly money. And then she pulls out some coins. They were like little blue chips for 50 cents and... I, a bunch of different colors. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is real. So I'm like, okay. And Martin's like, let's go. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. So I had two bags of groceries going to my house. I see my mom. And I'm like, mom, look at look at all these groceries. She's all, I'm, I'm all excited. He's like, where did you get this? And then I see my dad <laughs> coming from, you know, from the side drive. And I go, Martin, and look, we use this money. And oh, boy. She said something like, ¿Y esta comida qué? Oh, no, tu papá. Oh, oh. It was like that. It was like, oh, oh. It was like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, and then I I'm, I don't know what, I, all I knew was that we were getting good food 
And so I wasn't really listening to her, and I got excited, and I showed it to my dad. Your mind was blank except for the thought of Sloppy Joe's. That's right. And and getting some, like, pizza. We I, I had pizza in there, this this stuff you put on the in the oven, uh, all kinds of nonsense, right? And I see my dad, and I so I show him all the groceries, like, okay. And we use this. I'm showing him the money. He looks at me, looks at my friend Martin. <laughs> he goes... Martin, vete tu casa. Martin, go home. Martin's like, okay, oh, well, bye-bye, because my dad was a little bit, he's a little intimidating. So Martin left, and I'm like, uh-oh, what, what's going on? He goes, okay, pack up all the, you know, put everything back in the bag, go back to the grocery store. My dad goes to the manager, his name was John, real nice guy. He's like, okay, John, can't have this. John's like, is there something wrong with it? No, just can't have it. Here's my receipt, here's all the food. Don't want it. And John, all of a sudden, he's like, he really, he sees the receipt. He sees that it's, you know, I I don't know what he's looking at. All of a sudden, he's like, okay, let me give you back your money. And he was going to pull out some of that money. And my dad's like, no, I don't want the groceries. I don't want the money. Let's go. Miguel, let's go. And that's it. We left. And we're, we're walking. It's a big old parking lot. And then he looks at me. He stops. And he just says, look. We don't take from this government. I have to work for this. You want this? I'm going to work for it. You have to work for it. But I'll be damned if I'm going to take anything from this country that I hadn't earned. You get it? And I didn't get it. All I wanted was just food or whatever. But years later, I got it. I got the idea that if I'm not going to earn it, well, then you better figure out a way. You've got to look at the angles of everything to try to get what you want in this country. And so I don't believe in, in that kind of mentality of taking something that you didn't earn. And that's the hard nose, like, and the stubbornness. I mean, my father refused government cheese for crying out loud. But you love a deal more than anyone. I mean, not since George Costanza has a man loved a deal like you. I love a good parking spot and a deal. Have you ever valeted your car? No. Well, one time. <laughs> one time, and they, st- and they stole my gum. I'm still very upset about that situation. I don't know why people valet. There's parking right down the street. It's Los Angeles. You have to, you have to valet sometimes. <laughs> but this, this is the thing. To bring it full back, like, the generational divide is, yes, he came to this country the way so many people right now, as we are talking, are trying to come to this country. And at this very moment, we are not only making it difficult for them to come. We are punishing these people. We are physically abusing these people. Yeah. When you have medics who are saying, hey, governor, stop, stop abusing. That's ridiculous. You know, the, the, the Border Patrol are saying this is inhumane. You know there's something wrong. That's their job every single day to stop people coming over the border. But if you just do it humanely, I got no issues with that. When you do it inhumanely, the way they're doing it, to try to scare other people away, that's just some bullying bullshit that these people are creating. Look, I've, I've, I've seen some abuse. I've seen some things. When you feel it, when you, can, when you can smell it, man, it's not cool. And it's unfortunate that Biden or some people in the administration are so afraid to, to get their hands dirty when right is right and wrong is wrong. You know, I, I sit here 
in my mother's living room surrounded by a whole history of family, nieces, nephews, grandchildren. And I just think about all these people who that's all they want is an opportunity. And I suppose the reason we wanted to make this episode to help tell this story about this moment is to remind people that maybe just see a fleeting headline or a bit on cable news, that there is real pain and real lives that are being deeply, deeply affected in this moment. And all they want is a shot, as your father, my grandfather, Sebastian, very much did. Opportunity. And, you know, when I think of the long arc of, of our family's history, for it to end up with me in my dungeon here, it just feels like I'm not sure I've done it right. But, <laughs> but, but I... <laughs> well, you know, it, it look, it's, um, it's surrounded by memories. My dad is there. That's right. And that's all you need. He is here. And I think he's been very much with us in this conversation. So to him, to you, I thank you both. And uh, to our guest, Beto O'Rourke, the future forever uncertain, but um, we can try to do the right thing. Dad, I thank you. Anytime. Thanks. that's our show. If you enjoyed this special, somewhat unusual episode, be sure to leave us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. If you want to go the extra mile, sharing the show with a friend, sharing it on social media, all of this really helps new listeners find the show. Special thanks this week to Gina Inahosa, Eric Bozeman at Star City Studio Productions, my father, and of course, our guest today, Beto O'Rourke. To purchase his new book and support the work he's been doing with Powered by People, along with a bunch of great organizations mitigating what's happening down at the border, visit our website at talkeasypod.com. If you like today's conversation, I'd recommend our episodes with Stacey Abrams, Dolores Huerta, Julian Castro, Gloria Steinem, Congressman Ilhan Omar, Congressman Maxwell Frost, Noam Chomsky, and Dr. Cornell West. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. I want to give a very, very special thanks to our team this week, without whom today's episode would not be possible. 
Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and CJ Mitchell. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Chris Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Maya Koenig, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Lee Tal Molan, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with another episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts.